from 12 News, this is Newsmakers. Addressing city violence in the summer is no longer just a local police matter. The federal government through the U.S. Attorney's Office in Rhode Island is also playing a role with their Project Safe Neighborhoods initiative. But law enforcement is seeing a growing threat to police and the public safety, devices that illegally turn handguns into automatic weapons. Our guest this week on Newsmakers, U.S. Attorney for Rhode Island, Zachary Cunha. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. Ted Nisi is off this week. I'm joined by Target 12 investigator Eli Sherman. Our guest again is Zachary Cunha, U.S. Attorney for Rhode Island. Welcome back to the program. It's good to have you. It's great to be here. Good to see you, Tim. Good to see you, Eli. We have a lot to talk about, um, but I do want to start there. We're a month in, into the summer, which tends to be a violent time for all urban areas. It's not unique to Metro Providence, but it has been true for the Providence area it, recently. We've seen two murders uh, and other violence. Your office, as I said in the open there, is trying to be proactive with this sort of street violence. What role do you play here? Explain it. Well, first, a little bit of perspective. I think there are actually some positive trends in this space. If you look at the work that Providence Police has done in terms of the number of shootings, say, in 2022 versus the year before, there's a significant increase. I think it dropped from 88 to 44. That's a positive trend. If you look at uh, some of the numbers that came out, I think, just today from the FBI, we're seeing some decreases in violent crime nationwide. Those are trends in the right direction. So what's working in those trends? Is it just yanking guns off the street? What? I think that's an important part of it. But the other half of this is, so, so those are gains. We have to hold those gains, and we have to make sure that we stay ahead of the curve. And what you just mentioned with respect to Glock switches, auto sears, um, automatic weapons showing up on the street, that's an important part of that. Because obviously every gun death that takes place or every shooting that takes place in our cities, in our communities, is one too many. So from a federal perspective, we're looking at what can we do. And some of that is law enforcement. Some of that is cases that we bring. But some of that is coordination, grant making, um, efforts to bring different constituencies in the law enforcement community together. So, for example, just a month ago, I convened a meeting uh, in my office. There was pretty much no room in the room. Uh, we had law enforcement leaders from all around the state from our Project Safe Neighborhoods partnerships. Uh, Project Safe Neighborhoods is a long-running effort on the part of the Department of Justice to work with state and local colleagues to combat gun violence. So, mm -hmm. for example, we have the Providence Police, Cranston, Pawtucket, Woonsocket, uh, Central Falls, Newport, a number of other partners, Warwick. Um, basically the entirety of the state's urban core talking about what are the gun violence problems we're seeing in our community, how can we share and leverage information um, to bring cases, whether those cases ultimately wind up in my office, whether they're charged by the state attorney general or otherwise. Um, so that's, the, that's how we're trying to stay ahead of the curve. So generally speaking, federal charges come, or come with a stiffer penalty than state-level charges. I mean, there's variations there. But is that true in the realm of uh, gun, gun possession, gun violence? Are, are federal charges, are they stiffer punishments generally? I mean, it, obviously, everything depends on the circumstance. But a lot of the cases that we try and bring are, for example, uh, individuals who are previously convicted felons who are in possession of a firearm. So that may trigger certain mandatory minimum penalties that mm -hmm. may be higher than what's available in the state. We're certainly looking at individuals who are engaged in, uh, you know, we talked about auto sear and Glock switches. Those are 
It's a little device, and many people may not know this, but that little device in and of itself is considered a machine gun under federal law. So we have federal remedies that we can bring to bear. And the same thing goes if you're talking about silencers or other equipment that might be used to basically turn something into an automatic or uh, we automatic weapon. Well, or we have video like that. of yeah. that uh, device in action on the screen right now, so why don't we talk about that? I mean, these uh, Glock switches, um, or SEER devices, as you call them. I mean, we should point out automatic weapons under federal law, as you sort of intimated there, they, they are illegal. Are you seeing more and more of these um, in the District of Rhode Island? Is it a growing threat here? Is that why you're talking about it publicly? That's one of the reasons we're talking about it publicly. Uh, it's, you know, we're seeing more of them here. We're seeing more of them nationally. And one of the concerns, obviously, when you're talking about a device like this is it's so small and it's so compact. So you have folks uh, ordering them online. or Easy in, to get? In some cases. Um, and, or in some cases, you have them uh, 3D printed or manufactured. Mm. And so that's a concern. Um, and that's why we're trying to stay ahead of the curve. It's also something that you want to increase awareness of so that if somebody's conducting a traffic stop or a warrant execution and they see this device, you want that officer to know what that is, what its federal law implications are, and that's part of the effort that we're undertaking. Police that we talked to have been on the job for a long time. Um, they say that, you know, in the past it was kind of unusual to find a gun in, in an arrest. And now, more and more so in run-of-the-mill arrests, they're seeing illegal firearms. What do you think is the biggest contributing factor to more and more of these illegal firearms getting in the hands of bad guys? I mean, that is obviously at the heart of our concern. We're seeing more and more guns in more and more contexts, whether it's drug cases or fraud cases or other cases, exactly as you intimate. A police officer or a federal agent goes out and makes an arrest and there's a gun there. Um, where are they coming from? They're coming from a variety of sources, whether it's being trafficked in from other states, uh, whether it's being uh, privately manufactured, privately manufactured firearms or commonly known as ghost guns. So they're coming from a variety of angles and we're working those angles, whether it's through the mail, uh, through interstate uh, commerce, whether it's through particular criminal organizations, we're looking at all those angles. You know, uh, gang violence often drives these shootings and, and, and the homicides. And I was in federal court, I think it was last year, in uh, Chief Judge John McConnell's courtroom. And there was a major sentencing in a case that your office worked very mm -hmm. hard on of significant players that were involved in a gang war. Judge McConnell put uh, them away for quite some time. They're still behind bars, though, fighting it. Was there an impact on the ground immediately when they were uh, sent to prison? Do 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 local law enforcement feel that? We certainly hope so. I mean, that's the effort. When you're talking about that case, that's a case that was brought under the so-called RICO statute, yes. the Racketeer-Influenced Corrupt Organization. Which, which yeah. was designed to, for traditional La Cosa Nostra cases, but is being applied to other organized crime, and gangs are organized crime factions, right? You, I could not have put it better myself. They are, <laughs> and they're a significant driver of violence in the community. So if we can go in and dismantle the organizational structure that's driving some of that violence, we're going to do that. That's a, a great example in that case of that being applied successfully. And that's something, obviously, I'm not going to talk about things that are in the pipeline or not publicly sure. visible yet, but that is something that we do on a regular basis with our counterparts at the AG's office, with our counterparts in state and local law enforcement. Um, I just am wondering, you know, one of the other things that we hear from police is that the, the gangs were mostly concentrated in Providence for a long time. And now they're saying that they're sort of spanning out I'm wondering if it's becoming more challenging to sort of keep 
wrap their hands around um, gang activity if it's moving across different jurisdictions. Well, that's exactly what we're trying to do, and that's sort of the heart of what Project Safe Neighborhood is. It's bringing together these multiple jurisdictions to talk about what they're seeing in their community, who the players are, and how to best address that, because we're a geographically compact area, and frankly, it's unrealistic to think that someone who's engaged in illegal activity in Providence is not necessarily going to move into a community that is five uh, minutes down the road. I want to switch gears here, um, attorney, on uh, to a topic that we've covered a lot, um, and that is the ILO group, the attorney general, then your office, began looking into a controversial education contract to consulting firm ILO group by the McKee administration. We reported a close confidant to the governor wrote the initial blueprint for the contract that ultimately went to one of his subordinates. Where does your office's examination of that stand? Well, I think, uh, as you said, you've reported on some public comment or public activity that other folks may have highlighted. Um, as far as any kind of federal inquiry or the federal investigation of any matter goes, I think you know that we speak through our publicly filed actions and uh, what ultimately comes at the end of an investigation or inquiry. And we don't speak before that. And so I can say more generally uh, that when we become involved in a matter, there are a number of ways that that can go. It can ultimately ripen into enforcement action. It can wind up being declined in a way that sometimes may be publicly visible or may not be publicly visible. Or there may be something that we see in the course of an inquiry that we conclude is not uh, a federal matter, but that we wind up referring to a state or local counterpart. Um, beyond that, there's really not much I can say about that matter. Would you be able to tell us here if, if it were over? At the very least, could you say that to us now? I mean, again, speaking generally about how these matters progress, it depends. There are certain mm -hmm. circumstances where our resolution may be publicly visible, and there are other situations where we're constrained by uh, legal rules about privacy and disclosure of information, and it's not quite so visible. In investigations, speaking broadly, you know, because it's been maybe a year now since we reported that there were subpoenas that went out to different groups. Uh, in this matter, but how long can investigations last? Uh, when we think about a timetable for how long your office might be looking at a matter like the ILO group, what should we be thinking about in terms of timeline? There's no specific timeline for any particular inquiry. We take as long as it takes to get it right. The old commercial used to say, we sell no wine before it's time. I think the same is true of uh, any federal inquiry or matter. Uh, we're going to make sure that we're driven by the facts and the law and uh, things ripen as they ripen. Let's talk about another big headline. You, your office also launched a federal civil rights inquiry mm -hmm. into North Kingstown schools after we reported a former basketball coach had been subjecting some student athletes at the time to so-called naked fat tests behind closed doors. That coach, Aaron Thomas, has been criminally charged by the state. He has pled not guilty. Where does the civil rights investigation stand? That uh, I can talk about, and I'm happy to talk about a little bit. Um, obviously, that conduct is deeply concerning to me and to my office, and we launched a federal civil rights inquiry uh, because of that concern. Um, you know, one of the things that I can tell you is that we uh, have been and continue to be very actively engaged in discussions with the school and the school district about how to put in uh, policies, procedures, and equally importantly, training to make sure that something like this alleged situation does not recur. 
one of the challenges in that discussion has been there's been an incredible amount of turnover in terms of personnel in the school district. Um, a great many of the people that we have interviewed in the course of our investigation have left. They've come and gone. Um, a large number of folks in leadership have come and gone. Mm -hmm. um, and that makes it challenging to um, come to any sort of final resolution. Um, what I will say is, uh, I mentioned that we're very actively engaged in discussions with them. I think the process of our engagement with them has been helpful in terms of moving the district in the right direction. Um, I think we've gotten a lot of positive engagement, and I remain optimistic that we will ultimately see the change there that we need to see. My focus is on seeing that change. It's not on necessarily announcing something or filing something for the sake of doing that. It's making sure that if a kid has an allegation or a parent has an allegation that something is happening, they know who to go to, how to raise that, and whoever they raise it with knows how to deal with it in a responsible way and make sure that it gets addressed. Looking, and, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, Continue. no. And I, and I think we're making progress. Were student civil rights violated? Well, ultimately, that's a conclusion that would come at the end of an investigation. Um, and frankly, in this particular kind of investigation, what we're more focused on is the policies, the procedures, and are those in place to make sure the kids are safe. You talked about seeing progress. Can you point to some tangible examples of what the school district is doing that gives you um, in the encouragement that you're talking about, that this this approach is working? Well, I can't talk about confidential discussions, but what I can tell you is that we've been very actively engaged with both the district and its consultants um, and its council on uh, specific policy provisions and specific training provisions that we want to see. Have they implemented the, you know, you say if, so, if a student or a parent is concerned, uh, you know, moving forward about something that's going on, uh, is that all in place in North Kingstown now? Is there you know, for the parents at home, what should they know? Well, I think the most important thing they should know is that if they continue to have a concern, they should raise it. And if they don't feel it's being addressed um, by the school or the school district, they should feel free to reach out to my office, and we want to know about that. Um, as I say, I do think that progress is being made, and I do think that the trend is in the right direction, but we need to see more. And if it is raised to your office, a possible next step would be to to seek an injunction in court, right, or seek some sort of court action. I don't want to sit, talk about specific remedies that might be applied because they vary depending on the situation. There are cases where we seek an injunction in court. There are cases where we seek an agreement. There are cases where we get voluntary compliance, and we don't need to do any of the above. You know, before we uh, wrap up this topic, I, I know you talked about there was a lot of turnover at, at the schools, and that might have caused a delay. But, uh, you know, I think we're curious if you felt the school district was at least initially uh, responsive to your inquiry uh, when you began this. I mean, they had a lot of incoming. They have a potential civil suit hanging over them. They have a criminal case. Um, but with the civil rights inquiry, were they responsive to your office? I, as I say, they have been very engaged, and we remain very actively engaged. They're engaged them. now, though. I guess I'm, my question is more about early on. Were they They've engaged? engaged. They've okay. engaged. All right. Our guest this week is U.S. Attorney for Rhode Island, Zachary Cunha. We're going to take a break. Stay with us. You're watching Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. Ted Nisi is off this week. I'm joined by Eli Sherman. Our guest is U.S. Attorney for Rhode Island, Zachary Cunha. Eli? 
Um, there's been some criticism at the national level lately aimed at your boss, Attorney General Merrick Garland, with some people, namely in the GOP, saying that he's been too lenient um, with Hunter Biden and overly aggressive with former President Donald Trump. I'm wondering, from your perspective, if you feel like the Department of Justice has been politicized. You know, I've been with the Department of Justice now for almost 19 years under multiple administrations. And my view of it is there's only one way to do this job right, and that's on the facts, on the law, and on the merits. And that's how we go about our business in my office, and that's how DOJ goes about its business writ large. You know, as Eli said, um, you know, all these ongoing investigations swirling around the former president, he has leveraged these prosecutions for uh, political gain, and in doing so, he's taken aim at the FBI and federal prosecutors. That's caught on in large circles um, in the Republican Party. He accused people in your profession of uh, weaponizing the power, uh, your power for political purposes. I just wonder what it's like to work in that environment right now. Does it feel different than it did... I don't know, uh, five years ago? I mean, politics aren't my lane, uh, law enforcement is. But you feel the winds, don't you? Well, one of the great things in Rhode Island is we have, I think, great working relationships among both our federal and local counterparts, and I think we have a good deal of community and public confidence. And in large part, that's because we're out and we're engaged in the community. Um, are there trends and things that I see across the country that concern me in terms of extremism? Uh, of course there are, and that's one of the reasons why we try and stay ahead of, cur of the curve on those issues as well. We have an initiative called United Against Hate, where we're out in the community talking about uh, what constitutes a hate crime and who you should reach out to if you see uh, or hear something that's of concern. We've done that program with the interfaith community, with the LGBTQ community. We're currently planning an event with the Asian and Pacific Islander community. Um, so I think all of uh, things like that, outreach efforts like that, are part of the way that you build trust and confidence in law enforcement, which I think on the whole is pretty good around here. You know, it's interesting. We've, we've seen I believe four defendants out of Rhode Island now uh, charged in the, the, for their role, alleged role in the January 6th insurrection. Those are not coming out of your office. They're all hand, handled out of the District um, of Columbia. Correct. Okay. But, you know, one, one thing we learned by reading those affidavits and whatnot is there are groups in the area in Rhode Island, say the Proud Boys, there is a, a, a faction of them here. Um, is that something that's on your radar screen and uh, your office is actively looking at these different groups like the Proud Boys that might be in the District of Rhode Island? Well, I'm not going to comment on any of the ongoing litigation in uh, DC that's sure. being handled by D.C. or any of those cases. I will say anything that constitutes a potential law enforcement threat, whether it's extremism or violent crime, is something we're going to be looking at. All right, shifting gears, U.S. District uh, Court Judge William Smith, federal judge, announced that he would be entering senior status in 2025, which means President uh, Biden can nominate another federal judge in Rhode Island. It's a rare vacancy. Uh, but you have appeared before Judge Smith, I'm assuming, I have. many times. What are your thoughts on him, I don't know, downshifting his workload and sort of moving toward retirement? I have the, nothing but the greatest regard for Judge Smith. He's a judge's judge. Um, you know, one of the things I'll say is... I've been practicing in federal court for about 22 years now, here and in other districts. I've been in front of a lot of judges, and we are just tremendously fortunate here in Rhode Island that we have a bench that is thoughtful and deliberative and also tremendously um, attentive to doing individual justice to the folks who come in front of the court. Uh, and I think Judge Smith has been a big part of that. Senators Reed and Whitehouse are accepting applications. Are you applying? <laughs> 
<laughs> I am focused on the work of the United States Attorney's Office and the responsibility that I've been given to lead it. I'm not going to talk about whatever my future career may hold. Well, you serve at the pleasure of the president, I do right? serve at the pleasure of the president. So, Do you get any opportunity to lobby suggestions of who you hmm. might like to see sit on the bench next? My role is to run the United States Attorney's <laughs> I leave political recommendations to other folks. Look, Judge Smith and Judge, uh, Chief Judge McConnell now, uh, along with your office, pushed what's called the diversion program where nonviolent offenders can have their prosecution deferred if they meet certain uh, criteria. Briefly, what thresholds do they have to hit? And is this still a lot of ink was spilled when this was really pushed forward, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, I, I'm guessing. Uh, but is this still a very active program? It is an active program, and it doesn't stand alone. So it's part and parcel of a number of efforts that the court has taken and that we have worked with the court on to deal with both reentry after incarceration and alternatives to incarceration for appropriate defendants. So as far as the diversion program goes, these are generally nonviolent offenders uh, who, based on their criminal history and the circumstances of their offense and their personal circumstances, um, the court may conclude, defendant may request, and our office may ultimately agree um, is appropriate for pretrial diversion, which basically involves intensive supervision by the court and the probation department with the involvement of our office and their attorney um, to get them, you know, often it will involve whether it's drug counseling or preparation for entry into the labor market and uh, under supervision by the court for an extended period of time. And if that's successful, then they will be, rather than be sentenced, they'll be diverted uh, and, and, and have a non-incarcerative uh, disposition. Um, you recently added three new prosecutors to your office. Uh, I'm wondering, are you fully staffed up? Do you have enough people in, in your office, or are you looking to add more? That's um, actually, we added three tremendously talented assistant United States attorneys. I'm thrilled to have them on board. They're handling violent crime. They're handling uh, our fraud docket and our affirmative civil enforcement docket, which are all important areas. We actually have uh, just added, for the first time in many years, an additional assistant United States attorney position uh, in our criminal division that we are recruiting for even as we speak. Um, so I look forward to welcoming yet another a talented attorney aboard to do the work of the office. So in 2022, the number one prosecutor in your office was for, I'm sure you're not surprised, drug offenses. Mm -hmm. This is according to data that I look at uh, way too often, the U.S. Sentencing Commission. Um, is that going to be the same in 2023, you think? Will, be, will drug offenses top the list out of your office, or do you think there's a shift? Hard to say. I mean, we're obviously driven by what the crime threats are. We're not meeting uh, some preset uh, yeah, formula. Right. And uh, we do continue to see a number of significant drug cases. There's obviously an overlay between some of those and violent crime. I mean, uh, I can tell you, talking once again about our Project Safe Neighborhood initiative, we've opened approximately 100 matters since I came in uh, in the violent crime space. Now, some of that may be um, overlaid with drugs, and some of that may be freestanding. So it varies. But I would say drugs and violent crime continue to be major areas of focus and emphasis. You know, when you look at the pie chart in other parts of the country, uh, for drug offenses, I should say, you will see a, a huge chunk of meth, methamphetamine cases in other parts of the country. And traditionally, when you look at Rhode Island, it is a very small sliver. Uh, for some reason, and it, we don't have to get into why, but the Northeast has been largely immune to methamphetamines here. Is that changing? 
Well, you're absolutely correct that historically New England has been lower in methamphetamine than some other parts of the country like the South, the West, the Southwest. Rural areas particularly. Particularly. Our number one concern on the drug front continues to be opioids and fentanyl. Um, I think you've seen in the past year we had a very significant enforcement action taken against, I, I think regrettably it was the largest pill seizure in uh, U.S. history. In U.S. history, yes. And, um, and, you know, that is concerning in and of itself. But what that seizure showed and what we've seen in other cases is we are seeing an uptick in methamphetamine, uh, not to the same extent as opioids and fentanyl, but it is an area of concern and it's something that we're very closely focused on. To the uh, pills, why is it that it's shifting away from you know, more injection or other types of um, taking these drugs and, and more towards pills. Why, why is that happening? I think it's a variety of factors. I mean, one of the reasons why fentanyl is both so ubiquitous and such a concern is that it is so potent in such small quantities, which makes it easily transportable and easily mixable into all sorts of different contexts. And what's so particularly concerning about the pills is you have some individuals who think they are and intend to be taking an opioid, and you have other individuals who think they are taking or buying Adderall or Ritalin, and that's, that becomes a particular concern when you're talking about college kids or high school kids who may be told and think that this is a relatively harmless pill that they're taking when, in fact, it's laced with fentanyl and potentially can stop their breathing. Uh- U.S. Attorney, we have less than a minute left here. So just briefly, um, your office, I think, had the first prosecution in the nation, but aggressively went after theft of federal COVID relief money. We did. Okay. Um, Are you starting to see those cases ebb now moving forward? We have a number of those cases. I mean, fraud is a major priority of my office. And my goal is the second most prosecuted crime in 22. It is. And my goal is that we punch above our weight as a small district and a small office. And we do both in the PPP fraud and the uh, unemployment fraud space. And also whether it's healthcare fraud or procurement fraud or any other number of categories. So we continue to focus aggressively on that. All right. U.S. Attorney for the District of Rhode Island, Zachary Cunha, thanks so much for joining us on the program. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. If you missed any of it, it's on WPRI.com. Ted Nisi will be back next week. My thanks to Eli Sherman. And don't forget to sign up for our podcast. I'm Tim White. We'll see you next week on Newsmakers.